What up, all you beautiful misfits and rejects out there? Thank you for joining me for episode 253 of Misfits and Rejects. In today's episode, I spoke with Aladdin Ferry from China Compass Productions. But before I introduce him and what he does, I have something really cool to share with you. So recently, I was contacted by this company called Magic Mind. I'd never heard of them before. And in past episodes, I have described my lust for green juices. I used to juice every single day organic leafy greens in my masticating juicer. And it was awesome. I felt great. But if anybody juices, you know, it's super tedious, like the cleaning process, just the time it takes to get the juice out of the leaves and the expense as well. It was cost me like 30 bucks a week or something like that. Anyways, this company reaches out. I had never heard of them. And it was a pretty simple request. It said, Hey, we want to send you some free samples. If you like it, We'd love it if you told your audience about it, but we only want a genuine review on our product. We don't want this to be some like sponsored ad plug. Only do it if you like it. And if you like it, then you can get some more product and potentially become like an affiliate for us. So I said, sure, send me some stuff. And they did. And I'm not a big coffee drinker. I don't wake up and have a cup of coffee. So when they sent me this, they said, you know, take it in the morning and Within five days, you'll start to really feel this like beautiful energy that lasts throughout the day. I took it day one and instantly felt this zing in my brain, which felt amazing and lasted throughout most of the day. I felt very articulate. My brain felt kind of warm and tingly, and I just felt very clear, focused, and energized. And it got me really excited because, like I mentioned, I love green juices, but the time it takes to make them in the morning is just too much time. And these Magic Mind shots are super little. You can add it to water. You can have it straight. They're mildly sweetened with agave. And I really enjoyed the feeling. So instantly, I wrote them back saying like, yeah, I'd love to work with you guys if we can figure out something that makes sense. And they said, well, great. Why don't you offer your clientele 50% off their first month's subscription if they choose to take that route? And if they don't and they just want to try it once, you can give them 20% off. I said, this is awesome. So they gave me a promotion code that I'd love to give you. It's Misfits20. So M-I-S-F-I-T-S 20. And I highly recommend you check it out. I mean, this stuff is awesome. It really does what it says it's going to do. It's very healthy. It's got all the cool things in it that are supposed to help brain function, energy. You know, they got all the lion's mane mushrooms, the cordyceps, the nootropics, the adaptogens. The list goes on. There's like 14 different things in there. But for anybody listening, I'm sure you've heard of a few of those things and know that they're all meant to help energy, boost mental function, and sustain it rather than having that like midday crash. From what I hear coffee drinkers describe, they have their morning coffee and then by midday, late day, they need another one. Where this is more of a lasting, clean, energetic buzz, I guess is the best word to call it. And like I said, I just felt like my brain was functioning on all cylinders. I felt very focused, very articulate when I was communicating at work. And I love it. So yeah, I'm a convert. And like they asked in the original correspondence, they said, hey, this isn't like a paid sponsorship ad. This is more, we're happy to send you a sample. If you like it, we'll send you a bit more. And we'd love it if you shared it with your audience. And we're happy to give them a huge discount. So like I said, you get 50% off your first month subscription if you choose to take that route. And if not, that's all good. You get 20% off your first time buy. So I thought that was awesome. And I think you'll love this as well. So I highly recommend it. Definitely use the promotion code MISFITS20 to get those big discounts. 
And if you are doing it on your phone, if you get to the checkout area on the phone, and you can't quite find the where to plug in the promotion code. Just go into the details of what's in your cart and that should help pull it up. I had a little bit of trouble originally finding where to punch in the promotion code when I was just doing my own research on how to help you get this promotion when you do choose to order it. But yeah, it's awesome. And I highly recommend you check it out. And now back to Aladdin Ferry with China Compass Productions. Really interesting episode, guys. Aladdin reached out and told me what he was doing and I got really intrigued because I love China and I think anybody who gets a wild idea to go over there and start a business has something interesting to say. And Aladdin is one of those guys. He loved Chinese history. He loves cinema. So he decided to go to China and start his own production company, which is pretty hardcore and something that you don't hear all the time. So listening to his episode got me super inspired just to keep plugging away at what I do because anything's possible. If you are a Westerner who wants to move to China and start a production company, then you can do anything. And this is a great example of that. So Sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with Aladdin Ferry from China Compass Productions. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Kruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. Right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today, I'm joined by Aladdin Fare from China Compass Productions. Aladdin, welcome to the show. Hi, Chapin, and yeah, thank you for having me on the show. It's a pleasure, man. Thank you for reaching out. I was extremely intrigued by the tale you told via email, and I wanted to get a lot deeper with you. But before we do, can you tell the audience where you're calling in from? Uh, well, I'm actually calling from my uh, um, my mother's uh, place uh, back in Marseille. Uh, this is where I am right now, after three years away from my family due to COVID, not because I was a cool nomad on the road. <laughs> Wow, three years away from your family. Was that the longest time you spent away? Yeah, 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 indeed. Yeah, I mean, many uh, people I interview talk about the time away from family is always difficult, and everyone's obviously trying to keep the relationships they have with their family strong. So, have your parents always supported your life decisions? Because I know you've spent seven years in China, you created a really cool production company over there. Have they always been supportive of this type of lifestyle? Well, uh, to be honest, and they've told me, I think they would prefer me to be around in Paris and Marseille. I mean, to be in Western Europe, that's for sure. But I'm lucky enough, I would say, to have both of my parents are artists. My dad is a comedian. My mom is a dancer slash choreograph. Um, and, and basically, like, uh, their own had to fight to kind of get their own lifestyle and their own way of working. So they were always working in the same area in France. But when I said I wanted to go to China, I think they were like, well, if my son wants to go abroad and do something new while I did the same to my family, because when you want to be an actor in the 60s, obviously not many people think this is a great life work decision. So yeah, my parents supported me and uh, I'm, I'm really grateful for this. I do know they miss me, but they're they respect my decision. So thank you, mom and dad. <laughs> no, that's very cool. Yeah, you don't really... I don't have too many guests on here who both 
who have both parents as artist artists, you know, and especially within the comedy realm or the dance realm. That's really interesting. How, what was your life growing up like? Uh, that's funny. A lot of people are wondering about like, how how is it to have artistic parents? You know, it was not as one could imagine, just free your creative mindset and stuff. I mean, of course I could, but you know, my, even though both of my parents never managed to get like a high education degree, uh, I, I don't think they, yeah, they both did not finish even high school. So that, and people on their age, they do finish high school most of the time. Uh, but even though if I had like a bad grade in math and they're bad in math, but if I had a bad grade, I would just get uh, ground, uh, I don't think, I don't, uh, grounded. I'm sorry, I don't know what's the verb. Yeah, grounded. Like when age. your parents, yep. no, not grounded, like you can't go out of your room, but you know, your parents are not happy with you and they're just like, please uh, make more effort and uh, I don't know what's the, not scream that, but you know, you're just being, uh, your parents are, if I would bring a bad grade, a bad math grade, for example, they would still tell me to, you know, study more and, and they were not really happy about that. So it was on a daily basis, like most of the time I would not see them at night. And at, when I was really young, my mother actually went down south uh, in, in Marseille. And yeah, but, you know, I guess as a kid, you just have to adjust. And I, I really believe that as long as you have your parents love, whatever happens, and if you have food on the table, like, seriously, like, it's fine. Like you, they are much more bigger problem in the world. So it, I think it was like a normal childhood. Did you have any siblings? Uh, no, I don't. Okay. So you're an only child. And so where did you develop a love for film? Uh, well, obviously, my parents brought me to the cinema when I was really young. And, um, yeah, and I just, yeah, love watching movies. What's funny is that I do not want it to go on the stage uh, kind of area, but I do really like movie and and uh, sound recording and film editing especially. So, yeah, that's how I ended up in, in that. And I think because I saw my parents being able to, you know, work their crap, then I guess I kind of thought that anything is possible as long as you work hard. Uh, but once again, for the audience, like I do know I'm, I'm coming from a middle class family. So even though I would fail to my plans, it's still OK. I have like a place I can go and crash and stuff like that. So it's not like I'm putting an all in on on my dream or something. No, yeah, it's it's interesting and very cool because I did some research on you as well. And, you know, obviously you have two degrees, one in film and then one in Chinese history, which led you to China, obviously, I'm assuming. Can you kind of take us through that decision? What, what intrigued you about Chinese history and then combining that to move to China and then start a film company in China? Sure. Uh, I mean, to any, if uh, Barack Obama is listening to this show, uh, I would want to thank him because uh, I guess you heard the pivot strategy. No, I have. Oh, the pivot strategy. Yeah. So no, but that's one of the many reasons I went to China. So first of all, I've always been interested in Chinese. Uh, I've always obviously been interested by uh, Chinese history. And I've been working in a documentary, historical documentary in France for a couple of years. And at some point I wanted to, you know, do something else. And I went to some uh, professional event. And then, you know, you have the whole flow of the world. And, you know, Barack Obama decided that Asia was basically supposed to be the U.S. main goal in the coming decades because this is the place where things are going to happen in the future. So I always joke and pitch myself by saying, like, if the president of the USA thinks that China is one of the most important places in the world to be and to understand, 
then maybe I should maybe do the same, especially if I studied like Chinese history. Uh, so I just went there because I thought it would, I was 27. I had no, I had no girlfriend, no mortgage. Uh, you know, my parents were in good health, everything. And I just finished like kind of a work cycle. So I thought this is now or never, because if I'm not doing it at 27, then who knows, like in five years, like maybe I will have the girlfriend and the mortgage. So and then I don't think you can go to the other side of the world and try something new. Yeah. And I've only had one other person on the podcast that I can think kind of did the same thing where they literally just took that leap of faith and went straight to China without ever maybe um, going someplace like a starter country, if you will, like maybe someplace a little easier. <laughs> and uh, it sounds like you just dove straight into the deep end of the pool, picked up and moved to China and with the plan of actually starting a production company or what was your plan? So the plan at the beginning was to learn Chinese. Uh, so I went to the town of Nanjing, a really small town of 7 million people who used to be a uh, imperial capital of China a couple of times. So um, I went there. I studied for one year and a half. I mean, I, I was seriously thinking that after six months, I would be able to, you know, be good enough in Chinese to, you know, go and uh, go and do a work and look for a job. Uh, but this this did not clearly happen. Uh, after six months, I was just barely scrapping the the, the amount of I was barely after after six months I was barely able to understand to fully understand how deep I had to learn everything about the country just like from you just have to keep learning the history how to interact with people how to buy a train ticket you know like because if you in China like exactly what you said like it's not like a easy country in the sense of if you don't speak English and if you don't have the money to to pay for services of people helping you uh, then you're you're gonna have a really hard time. Uh, so if you want to buy a train ticket, you must learn how to read ca Chinese characters, or you will have to pay someone to do it for you. So you know everything. You just have to relearn and restart everything. So that was a really learning curve. So I quickly said, like, not to bore everyone, but I did one year and a half of study, and after even after one year and a half, I'm still far from being bilingual, even as of today. I can do meetings in Chinese. I talk to my accountant in Chinese, but I still don't think I'm bilingual because this is such a high degree to achieve, I think, in such languages like Japanese or Korean, for example. Uh, then I work for a private company and then a public company. And finally, one year and a half ago, I started mine. So I always had the dream of staying in my area, which is film and TV. And I just thought that, you know, uh, I should keep at it and, and be there. So I did not want it to go... Uh, that there are a lot of people who work in the import and export business. Like if you don't know what to do with your life and you want to make tons of money, this is a place you should start exploring. But I wanted to stay in film and TV for sure. But I went and I went a little bit like uh, uh, without preparing myself too much, I think. I thought I was preparing myself enough, but I clearly was not. So yeah, when guys, when you move to a foreign country, like try to find as many people as you can who live there and who can help you process all the new information because otherwise you're going to learn it the hard way. You're going to survive, but this is not going to be fun at the beginning. Yeah, let's talk about that more in depth because this is something I like the audience to really understand, which is the perseverance you must have had to go through to stay there and the desire to stay there since I would imagine there was many moments where you were very frustrated and wanted to quit. What Can you talk us through some of those moments and what that was like? Yes. Um, I mean, for several time I wanted to quit. So the first time I was looking for a job after one month, after one year and a half, 
of being in after one year and a half of being in China was really thinking, oh, I'm, I have three years of experience. I've done a couple of documentary as a producer slash director who went on small local TVs, but you know, it's still something in my opinion. And, and, and that was really hard, like to find people because over there in China and like no one used LinkedIn. Uh, it's all about like people to people references. And it took me like more than five months to find like a concrete job. When I nailed it, then I got like the whole work visa and everything. So I was really happy after so many months, but I was really ready to quit. Um, so yeah, I think I got lucky at some point. I, I'm well. I pushed my luck and my luck answered back, I think. Uh, then later on, um, I moved on like to a couple of companies. And once again, like the last company I was in, like there was the time of COVID. And it was like um, not really fun because me, I was really lucky. I did not do any single day of being confined in my home or anything uh, because some towns in China were confined, but not others. And I was trying to find like some side gig. And then the second time I had to, you know, keep persevere is because when I went, I went, I was at some point in China and with a couple of friends, we wanted to start a company of film and TV production, like production services. So production services is when you help like uh, documentaries or TV format or movies or advertisement being shot in another country. So like you are an American company, you know nothing about China, France or Brazil, and you need to find local producer to help you shoot your stuff. So we started this company, China, China Compass Production, the three of us and COVID starts. And of course, production service company are not the kind of business that are going to make a lot of money at that point. So my two friends, like they basically decided to stop doing that. So they, they left. I kept the brand, I could say. But at some point, I really felt um, I, at least I had like a steady job on the side. But that was kind of my hope that this side gig production company we were building would one become my, my true main job. And uh, once again, like I had to hassle for basically one year and a half. So I had my steady nine to five job. And on the side, I was like writing small articles, doing podcasts. Uh, I was starting to bring YouTubers to a Chinese platform because YouTube is unfortunately blocked in China. But yeah, I was like trying every single potential uh, things I could try to think of and be like, I will try this. I have a stable job. I will try to find something new. And after like I was hassling and hassling and within one year and a half, I was able to basically uh, go full time at my own job. And I'm really happy for that. I have to say that thanks or because of COVID, China closed its border. So many people were stuck outside or wanted to leave because some people want they don't want to stay in the same country forever. Kind of the international talent pool started to dry up. And then I was kind of the last few people remaining. So I also got lucky, if I may, on that. So then people started reaching out to me because they don't have that many choice around them. Yeah, that's really interesting, that whole process of how everything unfolded and like the, the moments that seemed desperate where obviously COVID makes it difficult for any type of production to occur, but you sticking with it and then all the talent pool had left and now you're the last man standing. Now you're the it guy, the guy that everyone turns to to help make their production whatever it may be i think it's a good example of just sticking with something can have a positive result over time but it's that time variable that everyone discounts and nobody wants to give enough credit to but unfortunately it's like 
one of the most important things where it's just going to take a lot of time sometimes. Yeah. And at the beginning, because even years before I started being full-time at my own company, like I was asking other entrepreneur friends working in film and TV or culture. And I was asking them like, how should I go at it? And everyone was telling me, Aladdin, do not leave your full-time job to be on your own company before you already have a couple of clients. If you do that, you're just going to be like by yourself and you're just going to scrape, uh, scrape. You're just going to be miserable and you're going to be stressed out and you're going to look for clients, but then you're not going to be feeling uh, energetic about it. So you should first find clients when you have a full-time job. And then when you have enough like revenues and a solid um, relationship with those people, then you can make the jump before that. Don't do it. And at the beginning I thought, oh, I'm not sure it's true. Maybe I should, you know, take a leap of faith, but um, I'm glad I listened to them at the end. Yes. I mean, I'm, a, I'm somebody who can attest to their sentiments of, you know, if you do take that leap of faith, the stress of not having a income or a support network can sometimes completely unravel uh, that the life that you you want to live. And I've done that millions of times where I quit my job. I moved to Southeast Asia, for example, hoping that I'm going to turn a corner and I'm going to start making money. And it just doesn't happen. I have to go back home with my tail between my legs and start again. And in many ways, me being in Mexico right now is another attempt in the same way. This time, however, I do have more skill now that I can get freelance work online. So that is one reason I felt more confident in doing this kind of leap of faith approach again. But I do really encourage people to always stick with their nine to five until, like you said, you make enough contacts or enough income to then make that separation between your job and your, your new enterprise. I do I do think that COVID really changed the mindset of people uh, because I'm currently on a kind of a world tour, if I may. I first did like a couple of months in Southeast Asia. I left China in October 2022. Uh, then I did like a few visits uh, to Southeast Asia. Then I went to France to finally go and see my family that I didn't see for almost three years, basically. And I think that right now I can tell to my clients that I, and I can I can work remotely like uh, I develop documentary series. I do a podcast about uh, Chinese comp- contemporary art. I've done like movie subtitles, things like that. And I think that before COVID, Chinese company or people that I used to work with in China, like they would have felt really uncomfortable with this idea that, wait, you're going to be out of the country, out of Beijing for like three, four, five months. Like, no, 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 no. I want you around. I want to be sure that you can deliver. But after COVID and everyone has been working remotely in China, then now I can basically, of course, if it's going to be like a shooting a, a video, that's not going to be possible. But most of my work is not that. And so far, I can really be abroad and keep working with them. And I can really feel that I, uh, if I have help if I have built trust with the people I work with and work for. Also, the fact that COVID has pushed people to work remotely, is, I think, makes things like much easier for people to try new things and, you know, go live abroad and try to be a digital nomad or, or a freelancer. How does it work when it, you did start to build your company in China um, with making a legal entity in China? I mean, the, I would imagine the paperwork and the documentation you need as a foreigner is quite a bit. Okay, so, well, uh, like I said at the introduction, my parents are artists, and all my life I've seen my parents struggling with, like, you know, 
uh, finding money for their projects. And France has like a huge culture of public subsidies, uh, not so much from what I believe in the US, it's more like market driven and try to find like some rich people who are just gonna give you some money. Uh, France is really focused on uh, subsidies, public subsidies, and who says public subsidies says paperwork. <laughs> so I've never been afraid of that uh, on the opposite. I think I've thrived through making uh, subsidies anyone wants to hire me on that no but joke aside like i uh I'm, I'm not afraid of that and i think when you have learned chinese when you went to an asian country and you managed to you know find a job and survive and you know i was able to find my own flat for example i was not going through like a westernized website um, agency that makes you pay like a premium price i thought i can do it and you could go on google and you can write like how to create a chinese company how to create a Chinese, how to create a company in China as a foreigner. And there is a term for this. It's called a Wufi, whole own foreign enterprise. And it's actually not that hard. I got an agent to do, of course, like the hard paperwork for me, but she doesn't speak English. If I would have hired like a English speaker, I would, I might have paid like double the price. But at the end, I paid like 4,000 euro, more or less. Uh, all included from agents fee to curating the company to renting an office at the beginning and to pay some tax to a local government. And it took me like three, four, five months roughly, but that was a bit painful sometimes when you have to go to the bank and you have to explain that you want to open an account. But at the end, it was an insight. I think that was okay. But because I do speak Chinese and I can talk to people. Otherwise, yes, if you don't speak a word of Chinese, you can't do it. Mm. And then why China? Obviously, you could have done this in France, but was it, was it just because a goal, the goal that you had set for yourself to start a company in China? Or was it just a natural progression since you had been there for seven years? Yeah, I think that was a natural progression uh, because I, I still wanted to stay and I still want to stay in that part of the world. I'm really happy to be back home and, you know, see other part of the world, especially after three years of COVID. COVID zero policies that we had. But yeah, I wanted to, I started to have clients who wanted to work with me. And if you want to, uh, if you want to, uh, if you want to stay in China, you must have a work visa or you must have a, a work permit. And to have a work permit, you're supposed to be attached to, uh, to a company. And that company can be yours or it could be someone else. But if it's someone else, then you don't have as much freedom as obviously if you're, you are your own boss. Uh, unfortunately, China doesn't have, you know, those kind of a remote freelancer visa. I think Indonesia and maybe Thailand, like some Asia, Southeast Asian country, I think they're kind of seeing the potential of tapping into like a expat going to their to their countries and work remotely but china unfortunately doesn't have that yet so you must have a local company or you come on a business or a tourist visa but then that becomes really shady because and then how people how they can pay you becomes really a really gray area if it's not borderline illegal so that's why i also created a company mm. and the production you do is is in all areas or is it just documentaries uh, so far, yeah, so far I've really stick to uh, documentary and podcast, like factual content, let's say, and a little bit of um, movie translation. And I would hope one day, you know, to go up and go to work on a proper feature film, for example. But uh, yeah, those things takes time, perseverance, I guess. 
I see, I see. And the team that you have in place at this point, are they all based in China? Are they all remote like yourself? Uh, so I have only one assistant uh, because I really see I really see me so far as a craftsman. Like uh, people come up to me and they're like, Aladdin, we want to do uh, a documentary about that topic in China. So I don't know. I will let you know. For example, there is a town called Iwu. No one knows it, but that's like basically the capital of uh, trinkets. Like all the tiny stuff you buy from China, they are all all the deals between the import-export merchant and the Chinese factories are all down in this town. It's called Iwu. And basically, we went there, Like, um, and my job was to just, you know, research characters. And all my job are like that. Like, people come up to me, and they hire me more as, like, some kind of a... And I guess that works for everyone to do copying writing or things like that, or being a sound editor. Uh, people come up to me and they need my talent to, you know, really work on a specific part of the project. So, so far, I don't really need to have like a team of five people because people want to work with me. They don't want to work with like uh, my assistant. Like uh, they know my abilities in factual content, like in terms of research and production and directing. So if you hire a director, like you just hire the director, you don't hire the his assistant. So that's why so far I'm, I prefer to stay low key. I prefer to stay, you know, like a small scale because at the end of the day, if you look at any production company, like, I mean, I, I guess if some might have like hundreds of people, but at the end of the day, most of them have only like five to 10 and you can make a, a ship running because it's all, this area is all about freelancer hiring other freelancer to make a project. And when the project is done, everyone goes home and you move on to the next project with a new team. One thing you just said about the the recent documentary you're working on, it's called Trinket. Is that what I heard? Uh, uh, no, the documentary uh, doesn't have like a final title. It's called. It's going to be called Economy. I'm sure we can find a. I'm sure we can find a note uh, on your podcast. I, I'm sure we can find a, a. I'm sure we can leave a link of that town that I'm talking about uh, in your podcast notes. Uh, but yeah, it's about the town called Iwu, and the docu the documentary series will be about all those merchants and characters like going to that town, and it's basically at the heart of globalization, basically. No, it fascinates me. I mean, to, tremendously because I have interviewed people who are kind of in the heart of that type of industry, making connections between factories and and just I mean, that's how the world turns through these production companies in China. Then. You know, sending all these merchandise out. It's just so interesting, the nuance of it. Yeah, definitely. So with your new digital nomad lifestyle, when do you plan on going back to China? Uh, I'm thinking it will be in March 2023. So be, I would have done roughly six months of digital nomad. Uh, that's that's harder than I thought, I have to admit. That's uh, people, people who do manage to do that like years on end, like I do think they are really master of, uh, you know, getting like um, a rhythm of life and being like super, what's the word? Um, and they must be super efficient at what they do in terms of waking up on time and do not lose time, uh, you know, having funds because you're in another country. You also have to work. Like I have to say, it's an interesting learning curve. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you say it. Can you take us into more depth about that? Like what's difficult for you? Like you mentioned, like waking up on time and just keeping a routine that's making you money and healthy. Yeah, basically. I mean, so first of all, like, for example, when I went to 
um, Southeast Asia. So I first went to the Busan Film Festival, which is like the biggest film festival in Asia. Uh, and then I moved on to Malaysia, Indonesia, and Singapore. So I had friends, like my method is I always try to find someone who lived around, like a friend or a peer or someone that can, you know, guide me around the town because I've done my fair share of hostel traveling. And if that's nice, at some point, I think it's always better to be in a, a smaller town, but with locals that you know and trust and, you know, you can have a good time instead of going to a big, fancy Instagrammy place but if you don't know anyone then you're gonna spend a lot of time trying to connect with people and you know just you know meet people because at the end if you travel it's to meet people not just you know to send pretty picture on social media but that's my take on that uh, and then I realized yeah at the beginning I thought oh it's fine I can just you know uh, do like a one day of uh, going around and and you know doing museum going to see movies or or like they do a day trip and then the day after I should be able to, you know, work. And um, and then I realized like it's really hard. It's just really hard to realize that when you're not in your comfort zone of your apartment uh, of the place you are, then you're just going to have a hard time. You know, you're you're meeting new people and then you're not going to go to sleep super early. <laughs> and then in the morning, it, also the weather is different or it's not your flat, you're in like a tiny hotel or at your friend's place and then you have to adapt to their schedule. And everything becomes, I feel, even more complicated or just like you want to go to have a, a day work. You manage to get your day work, congratulations, where do you go? And then you're just going on Google, okay, what are like the good place to uh, work and have a ca coffee at this have a coffee at the same spot and then you manage to find a place but then the wi-fi is crap the wi-fi is crap um, or then there is like a huge amount of people and it's super noisy and then i remember i was in kuala lumpur for a few days yeah and it took me a few days before finding the couple of cafes that i like when i know i can work be efficient uh, you know do my do my uh, post-production editing or do my research or make phone calls and it took me a few days and I realized if you keep jumping from town to town, like you're just not going to be efficient. Like I think you should stay like at least a couple of weeks in one place if you want to have a nice balance of like work and also because you're on the road. So this is where you go to museum or go to the beach or go climb a mountain and meeting new people. But yeah, it's uh, I was moving way too fast, way too much. And there was a month when I basically did not achieve anything. <laughs> yeah, it hope makes that, sense. Hope, hope that answered the question. Yeah, I have heard that. You know, if you're always moving, you're always losing days trying to just find the right location to get your work done. And you just keep losing days and more days and more days. And next thing you know, you've lost weeks and months and you, you're not making money anymore and, and you're losing money. So um, I'd like to ask you more about like your production company because this is something that I'm intrigued by because I've been trying over the last two years to turn my podcast into like a docu-series. And from what I see, you have obviously your production company where people will hire you to help them. And do you ever like have people pitch you ideas and then you go find money for them? Or how does that work when you own your own production company, when somebody comes to you and wants to get something produced? So, so far for to, to give any, uh, in my personal opinion, like when you have a production company, uh, let's say you're, let's, let, let's switch the, let's switch the role. Like, let's say you're a director and, uh, 
and let's say you want to shoot a documentary and then you want to go around town and you want to pitch it to production companies, uh, the production company, when you send them your pitch, at the end, if they like your pitch, they're supposed to, in my opinion, they should give you a little bit of money. In French, we call this an option. And the idea is that the producer basically buys the rights of developing the series or the documentary to the director. And then the producer and the director becomes a team. And then they go on to pitching forum in film festival or like specific market. And uh, so the producer must have like some cash in the in the in the chest and the producer must it's basically an investment of the producer to the project like i do believe that this director project is good and i'm gonna give him that amount of money to basically keep the rights for like one two three years and i'm gonna try the hardest i can to go and convince a television or a, or netflix like any online platform to basically give me more money so that we can keep developing and producing the, sh the series so in my personal case like we're not we see production but i'm not like investing personally onto project because so far i just don't have the cash flow and for that i would have like i have one of my clients i'm part of there it's a chinese company called in hope picture uh, we have a really fascinating story about a, a Chinese man who managed to climb Everest like in 2020. Um, uh, I can send you the trailer if you want. Yeah, please. I'll put all in the show notes. Cool. And um, uh, um, yeah, it should go out in the Chinese cinemas in a few months, hopefully. Uh, we, we still have, you know, it's all, everything is a work in progress when you work in this industry, whatever the place of the earth you are. And I would bring them that project to them, for example, because they are like bigger company. And if they see an interesting project, then they can invest in it. But it's an investment. And so far as like a one man show with one assistant and a, as a craftsman, like I can't do that. So if you guys want to send me pitch, I can, you know, take a look and tell you what I think. But I, I can't invest on any one project at the moment. I see. Now, with the director coming to you, say the production company and you giving them that money to what do you own that project then or do does the projector still own the project but the production company owns the rights for a certain period of time well is that what uh, I heard you say? yeah the, the contract that i've seen and signed in france is that the director at least in i i wouldn't be 100 percent sure in the u.s or other part of the world but yeah usually when you're a director and you give away you you give away your rights to a production company then the production company is supposed to give you money and then it's all a question of negotiation. If you're like a, if you're like a really low time early early new, newcomer director, then producer might be hard on you, and they might want you to sign a crappy contract. Uh, but if you're like a big time person, then maybe you can be the one kind of uh, pushing the envelope. And then it's all about you know negotiation. At the end of the day, like some producer, they would try you know they can sign off like a five hundred euro for like um, a concept of a, of a of a movie but obviously that's much much more expensive so it entirely depends like uh yeah what what could happen like it's, I see. Every, everything is negotiable basically i see and then last question about your company with you know you being a creative but you consistently are helping other people create their projects do you have ideas for your like something that you want to do and shoot a documentary that you're passionate about that you want to create 
that that's like the one million dollar question and and this is once again when you spend to, that's kind of my one to-do list of 2023 is that i feel i'm working too much on other people projects so i do get paid i work with really interesting people on really interesting projects uh but at some point yeah i would like to that's kind of the one thing i would like to push myself to be like to be more creative to be a proper author slash director um yeah, like for, for example, right now, but uh, because obviously I'm not gonna pitch like uh, the topic because people are not supposed to give away their uh, uh, their topic. But there is a couple of topic that I'm passionate about. But this is the moment when I have to go in front of my, I have to be efficient, wake up on time at 6 a.m. for example, like you, and uh, just you know write my pitch and then start calling cold emailing all the producer that I don't know and reconnect to the producer that I know and then wait for their feedback. So I do have a few projects like that, but I have a couple of ideas, but I, as long as you didn't sign a contract, do not tell everyone what you're working on. That's the rule number one. Okay, good to know. Thank you for that advice. So when you do go back to China, it sounds like you're based in Beijing? Yes, indeed. Okay, and is that where you'll continue to stay based because of just the amount of work that's available to you there? Uh, yeah, because for those who wouldn't know China, basically China has like three, four big cities. So Beijing, Shanghai, uh, Guangzhou, and Shenzhen. So Beijing is all about culture and politics. Shanghai is all about business, international business and marketing. Shenzhen is all about tech. And Guangzhou was kind of the really the old hub of manufacturing and import-export. But Shanghai is, I mean, of course, each Chinese port, each Chinese city is a lot of logistical hub. Um, and so when you work in my field, like you're obviously uh, living in Beijing because uh, this is a place where most of the film and TV companies, they are all located there. Um, what's interesting is that there is really um, kind of a wave from the internland, like places like Chengdu or, uh, or uh, Xiamen or uh, Xi'an, like you have like small town that we call tier two cities that are basically provincial capital, like because we don't have states in uh, in China, we have provinces. And those places are kind of slowly, uh, s slowly upgrading, kind of the, you can see the middle class of Chinese are really rising and rising and they want more and more interesting content. So now like there are places like the town of Chengdu, which is basically becoming like the cool hub of people to be so um, just like it's a side note for people listening to the show like don't think as china as like a monolithic country with just like gray buildings and and uh, sad people it's more than the opposite yeah let's let's let the audience know a little bit more about china because as we talked about earlier in the show like i've been there i loved it um i had a great experience and obviously the american media per portrays china in a much different light so as you just described there's different parts of China that are known for different things. There's tier two cities that are coming up and have a lot of beautiful things to offer. What could you say to the audience to help them understand like where China's at today and what we can expect from China in the future? Oh, well, this is a really tough question and I don't claim to be an expert on, you know, China geopolitical, uh, or uh, what, what China wants. Um, I mean, it's just from what I can see and what I can read and my interaction with my friends and in the business, in the business that I'm at. Um, I do think that, I mean, 
I mean, China was a really important country for centuries and centuries. Like it uh, was like a hub uh, for uh, during Middle Age, during the Middle Age, and even before uh, uh, the, the birth of uh, Jesus, for example. Like this country was really important in terms of culture. I mean, Japanese, Vietnamese, and Korean were using Japanese character for a really long time. It's only recently that Vietnamese and Korean moved on to their own version of their of writing their own language. Uh, then China was like a huge industrial hub of porcelain, for example. So this is a country which has like a really long history. It's the only civilization, uh, it's the only older civilization, the others being the old Egyptian and the Sumer in, in Iraq as of today. It's the only place in the, in the, on earth that has like a, a longest surviving oldest civilization. So that means that China is a rather proud country. I mean, they're big, that they're second economical power uh, on earth after what they want, what they will do. I mean, I'm, I don't have like my crystal ball right now with me, but I just see the path of this country just keeping rising. I mean, you have a lot of um, issues, like for example, like uh, just like as of yesterday, I don't know if you followed, uh, but the population of China started shrinking and so that's going to be a huge problem for the country, uh, you know, like how to be more competitive, for example. And uh, then there's like all the geopolitical issues that are surrounding uh, the area. But I guess wherever you look now, like it seems like the place is the world is becoming like a more and more complex place uh, every year passing by. Yeah, but you love it. And, and you yourself, because of your your degree in Chinese history, find that your lifestyle there, the people are just exactly what you always hoped and expected and it's going to keep you there for many more years to come? So to be honest with you, as much as I like uh, being in China, I mean, people always ask me, like, is China like a great country? And I always answer, it's an interesting country because it's not easy every day. I mean, you know, you have cultural differences and so on, but um, also like China has been closed off of the world for so many years that... Uh, you know, so many people like uh, when I walk in the streets, maybe not in Beijing, obviously, but if I go like I do a little bit of motorcycle and if I go like ride, ride in the small hills, uh, 100 kilometers away from from Beijing city center, like maybe I will see some people and I will be the one foreigner they're going to see this year. And if I go to a remote province, I might be the only foreigners they're going to see in decade. So China is like a interesting country for sure that is still learning like, uh, yeah, I mean, it's not as integrated. The local population is not as integrated, I think, in on the international stage as people in the West where people travel a, li a little bit more often and, and, uh, and go study a little bit more often abroad, even though there are a lot of, uh, you know, everyone think, oh, Chinese students are all across the globe but trust me they are just like a tiny 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 number of the total of Chinese students in total every year um, so obviously a lot of those Chinese students who never went abroad you know they there's still a, a lot of them uh, and then how to stay a long time in China to be honest I don't know I would like also to try something new because I think like it's uh, it's nice to I really appreciate the fact that I've been in this country I really feel I know it more than sometimes some experts will go on French TV channel, for example. Um, but I, 
but to be honest, I'm not sure like how long I, I will stay. Um, it's uh, because I think it's it's nice to learn a country and to dive into it and to understand it better. But then at some point, I also now I start missing a little bit the how to say the the excitement of going to a new place and restarting to learn everything. But now it's nice because I, I have a business, it's running, and people now come up to me and they're like, oh, well, didn't you want to work with us? Like, I don't have so much after running after people. It's still important to, you know, be nice to your the people you work with, keep a healthy relationship, and, you know, keep talking with people. But, um, sorry, it's a really lengthy answer. <laughs> no, it's okay. What, can I ask, if you don't mind, what is your cost of living roughly per month? Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, roughly in Beijing, if you, um, uh, thinking, I think if you want to live, I mean, it depends. Obviously, in Beijing, like if you want to live in a tiny flat in a kind of really remote place and you just eat basic food every month, I think for, and you go out with friends for drink, I think for less than one thousand dollar, you can really cover the whole month. Uh, but then, of course, if you want like a really great apartment in the middle of town next to the most fancy mall, uh, then obviously this you can triple, quadruple that that cost. And if you then want to go to Starbucks every single day, like of course this is going to be super expensive. I see. Well, this has been really cool chatting with you, man. If you had one thing to say to somebody listening right now to inspire them to maybe go to China and start their own company, or just even take that first trip outside of their home country, what would you say to inspire them to make that first step? You mean like to really leave everything and start or start a business or just travel, travel, normal travel? Either one, just something that you could say to encourage somebody who might be afraid to try something new. What would you say to them to encourage them to maybe go out there based on what they've heard you say in the last hour? Mm, I think anyone listening to me, thank you for keeping it uh up until then, uh, up until there, I think if you have like kind of a, because me, when I went to China, I had like no basic plan. It was just kind of something in the back of my head. At some point I woke up one morning and I was like, I need to try something new. And I was not really controlling it. And I planned it for many months. And then I went, I still, it was still hard. It was still not easy. I, it, of course I knew I was not going to some really dangerous places in the world, uh, but it was like kind of um, a really harsh learning curve. So I think if you have like a dream of, you know, just doing like a couple of months on the road as a backpacker or uh, try to do try to do a new job on the other side of the planet, like I think the first thing you should do is you should do it, obviously. But in order to make this less painful when you arrive, um, then you should definitely in advance try to find people who can explain to you a little bit of things like just go on Twitter, Instagram, try to find someone who is a bit like you, but who has more experience and try to send them a message and explain, hi, I'm from here. I would like to try this. Like, can you explain something to me? Uh, you know, just yesterday, like uh, there was this uh, young woman, I think she's from India. No, she's from India. Yesterday on LinkedIn, there was this young woman and she contacted me and she's like, yeah, hi, Aladdin. Uh, I have some question regarding China and she wants to be a copywriter for like big Chinese company. I think she she's looking for a job basically and she's trying everything she got. But I really I really gave her a lot of advice about like if you want to go to China, this is what you think you should think about and this is how you could find a job. And I really spent five minutes kind of explaining her things and I think I feel I wish someone would have done the same thing 
as I did with her yesterday, as someone would have done so that, and I wish someone would have done the same thing with me like five, seven years ago, because I think I would have lost less time than what I did. So yeah, just if you want to go, go, because it's, it's, it's there. If you're thinking about this and if you're listening to this podcast, obviously it's because you want to go, go, uh, but then try to find locals who can help you, you know, avoid some uh, basic mistakes in, in the coming future. That's good advice, Aladdin. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. Awesome, Aladdin. Thank you so much for your time. It was such a pleasure, man. I wish you all the best, and hopefully we can work together at some point on a project, maybe a Misfits and Rejects project. I would love that, dude. But yeah, like I said in the intro, this Magic Mind product is really cool. If you're somebody like me who likes the green juice in the morning, who likes that little zing, who likes the focus, that lasting energy to help you through the day, you know, you can still drink your coffee, but adding this into your morning routine does make a difference. Like I said, I noticed it immediately. And then the five days in which I did take it after that first time, it just continued to do what it said it was going to do. All those super healthy things in it, you know, like the matcha, the lion's mane, the ashwagandha, the turmeric, all helping inflammation, give you energy, help you stay focused, just that brain function that we all need throughout the day at work and just dealing with children and our lives. It's really helpful. And this stuff is awesome and very healthy for you. So again, you don't have to give up coffee, just add it to your morning routine. If it's something that you're interested in trying, I highly recommend you do, and you get a huge discount by using this promotion code, MISFITS20. So like I said, you'll get 50% off your first month's subscription, or you'll get 20% off one-time buy. And it's pretty cool, man. I think that it's really worth checking out. The details are in the uh, show notes. I will put a link for you to just go straight to their website and have a look, read up on it. I highly recommend you do. And always feel free to reach out and let me know the results that you get from it. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspires you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it the perfect one for you and I'll see you next time